Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. Today, I want to talk about three famous toxicology cases. Uh, hopefully, it'll help uh, you writers out there get some ideas for stories and how toxicology can uh, is used in real life and how it can be uh, confusing at times, but how perseverance pays off and how criminals are not as clever as they think they are. I want to start with uh, the Kristen Rossum case. Uh, this is a, a fascinating case. It became known for reasons you'll see uh, as the American Beauty murder, um, kind of after the movie, uh, The American Beauty, and you remember uh, with Kevin Spacey and Annette Benning, great movie, but really quirky and really dark. Um, and there was a suicide in there where there were rose petals uh, all around the bed, and uh, that's kind of where this case got that moniker. But Kristen Rossum, uh, R-O-S-S-U-M, and as you know, there'll be links to all this stuff on my show notes on my website and blog and everywhere else. Um, she was a, a very attractive blonde girl, very smart, very personable, uh, came from a wealthy, uh, a very respected family. She grew up in Claremont, California, and you could say that her life was on a path of, uh, of success. Then she developed a drug problem. Uh, crystal meth seemed to be her drug of choice, and she had all kinds of problems there, and it kind of trashed and uh, her career, sidetracked the entire thing. Uh, but then she met Greg DeVillers in 1995, and he was a decent guy. Uh, he straightened her out, or at least helped her straighten out. She enrolled and graduated uh, with honors, actually, from San Diego State University. She kicked her drug habit, and of all places, she ended up being a toxicologist at the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office. So, Kristen's life had turned around and things were good. However, the old uh, drugs reappeared. Uh, she began stealing them from the crime lab for her own use. Uh, particularly crystal meth and things like that. When obviously they're brought in to the toxicology department for testing in criminal cases, and it's not all that difficult to pilfer a few a few of them, and that's kind of what Kristen started doing. To top it off, she also began having an affair with Dr. Michael Robertson, the chief toxicologist, and oh by the way, her boss. So this went on for a while. Uh, apparently, uh, then, on November the 6th of 2000, uh, Kristen called 911. She apparently had come home and found her husband, Greg, on the bed, unresponsive. And the odd part is that the bed was sprinkled with rose petals. Uh, investigators, when they first saw this, thought, now this is weird. This is strange. Uh, why would this guy... Uh, do that. It didn't seem like a guy thing to them uh, to spread rose petals around when you're committing suicide, which is what Kristen said had happened. Um, said that he was depressed, he was having a lot of discomforts, he had been on pain medications, um, and, you know, that he committed suicide. Well, uh, Greg's family said there's no chance of that, you know, that he was a good guy, he was uh, smart, he was in a good place. 
Uh, he actually um, had a new job that he was very excited about and that, in general, his life was going very well. And, you know, we call these psychological autopsies. You go back and look at the victim and say, is this the kind of person that would commit suicide? And Greg didn't seem to fit that profile. And so the police kind of felt that the family might be correct. Um, so uh, then they found out about Kristen's affair. And they found out about her uh, drug stealing and her drug abuse. And these are obviously things that uh, that raised a lot of red flags. And it turns out that Greg had found out about them and had threatened to expose her affair and her renewed interest in drugs. And, of course, this she could lose the dream job, the job that she had. And uh, her boss, you know, Dr. Robertson, could too. And the police felt this might be the, a motive for Kristen to take matters into her own hands and do away with her husband. Okay, fine. Uh, how was she going to do this? Well, it turns out she had been back and forth to the house, and there was talk about uh, various analgesic patches and all of this kind of stuff. Well, when the uh, autopsy was performed, uh, obviously toxicological samples were taken. Now, Kristen apparently thought, okay, I work in the toxicology department. My lover is the head of the department. So any materials that come our way, we will have control of. And so if no uh, suspicious poisons are found or anything like that, then, you know, we can we can cover for this. It's kind of convoluted thinking because, well, he overdosed. There's supposed to be poisons. Uh, it's just a matter of what. Well, it turns out that the, the medical examiner said, well, you know, this is a family affair, so to speak. You know, the wife of the victim works in the toxicology lab. It wouldn't be appropriate for our lab to handle the toxicology. So he farmed it out to another jurisdiction. And this meant that, that Kristen and, and her lover Robertson no longer had control of the toxicological results. Well, it turned out that they found that he had seven times the lethal amount of fentanyl in his body. Now remember, this is 1995. We didn't know much about fentanyl. We know a lot about it now. You know, it's out. It kills people on a daily basis. Uh, drug dealers uh, lace their heroin and their amphetamines and everything with fentanyl because it gives a different kind of high. Well, it's also extremely dangerous. Depending on who you read and how you look at it, it's anywhere from 100 to 300 times more powerful than um, heroin. And so, therefore, it can kill you very, very, very quickly. It's a narcotic, and so the way it kills is by sedation, depressing the respiratory center in the base of the brain. You quit breathing, and you die of asphyxia. And this can happen very quickly, within a matter of a minute. Uh, you can go out. Police deal with this all the time out on the street where people have bags of white substances. They, they, you put on gla uh, gloves and masks when you're handling anything you suspect is fentanyl because if you touch it or inhale it, uh, it can take you down. It can take you down in a minute. And cops carry Narcan around with them, which is the 
the opiate antagonist. You inject it and it, it blocks the effect of the opiates and, and wakes people up. And they've used it not only obviously on victims of overdoses that they find in the street or people that are starting to go out from the drugs they've ingested or whatever, but also on cops who have contacted fentanyl and have hit the deck. And uh, so uh, fentanyl is out there. One famous case you may remember many years ago that some Chechen rebels took over a theater in Russia. Uh, and they had hundreds of hostages, two or three hundred, I remember, because those were the people at the, um, at the performance that night. And uh, the terrorists were strapped with explosives. And so you can see the scene, you know, the the Russian police show up, they're surrounding the thing, they're negotiating with them, and, you know, it's a very, very dicey situation. You've got two or three hundred people at risk, you've got guys who aren't afraid to die, who are strapped with the explosives, and you've got the cops out there. How do you resolve this issue? Well, what the Russians did is they pumped aerosolized fentanyl into the theater through the uh, ventilation system. And it worked so fast that everybody went down, including all the terrorists. Not a single one of them set off his explosive vest. And then they stormed the place and tried to start saving people. And I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was well over 100 people died from asphyxia because they just didn't have the resources to save 300 people. Um, but the point is, is that fentanyl inhaled like that works so fast that everybody went down and, and no explosives were set off. So you're talking about a very powerful medication. And Kristen Rossum had access to this through her job at the toxicology department. She understood how it worked. Well, they looked for needle marks, obviously, to see if he had been injected. And there were a bunch of them because the paramedics had worked on him. But they found a couple that, you know, especially one said, this is a little strange. This doesn't look like part of the medical team. And they think that this is probably the injection site. Well, uh, it it turns out that Kristen and, and her boss, I believe, also had gone to a recent toxicology conference where fentanyl was one of the topics. And part of the discussion was how difficult it is to trace. And in 1995, it was. It's much easier now because we know more about it and it's more ubiquitous. But back then, it was rare and unknown, and they didn't have the testing hammered out. So Kristen thought that they would, you know, pawn off the death as something else because they had control of the toxicology. Fentanyl wouldn't be involved, and she was scot-free, and she and Robertson could dance off into the sunset. Well, it didn't work that way. They found the fentanyl. They found out she had gone to a conference and all this. And then the real nail in the coffin, so to speak, it turns out that a uh, one of these preferred customer cards that you use at a grocery store, on the day of Greg's death, Kristen had gone in there and purchased one red rose. And so that's where the petals came from. So she had planned all of this. She picked the perfect drug. It was way an outlier that no one knew about. She had access to it. She created this scenario that he was depressed and in pain and not, you know, not happy and all this stuff. 
uh, hoping that no one knew about her affair, her, her new her new drug stealing, her new drug habit, and thinking that she had still gotten all that behind her. But the toxicologist, actually the medical examiner farming out the toxicology, was a smart move. It was the correct move. And in the end, it dashed her hopes of uh, getting away with this. And indeed, she didn't. And she was tried and convicted. And I think she got life, uh, which is what she deserved. Another very famous case took place in the mid-1980s. And it's the uh, Stella Nickel uh a product tampering case, and you might remember this as extra strength Excedrin, uh, and Bristol Myers got it, this it almost got taken down from this uh, whole thing because it looked like uh, uh, in-house product tampering or manufacturing defects or whatever. Um, and this kind of changed from uh, capsules with the powder inside to hard pills. This was one of the the landmark cases that brought about that change in how uh, oral medications are manufactured. You don't see the capsules so much anymore. Well, it turns out that, that Stella Nickel it was home with her husband. His name is Bruce. And he came home from work with a migraine and took two extra strength Tylenol and then almost immediately collapsed. Well, you know, obviously she called uh, the authorities and, and the coroner looked at it and did the, did the autopsy and determined it was a natural death that, you know, Bruce was, uh, you know, in his 40s, 50s, and uh, he probably died of a heart attack because it was a sudden death, and he was having a migraine, and he wasn't feeling well, so something was going on, and life moved on. Okay, natural death, nothing to see here, keep moving. But then, about a week later, a 40-year-old woman named Susan Snow took extra strength Excedrin, and interesting, her husband, Paul Webking, also took two of them. Well, within a very short period of time, Susan King collapsed and died, but Webking had no symptoms at all. He was fine. So when the autopsy was done on her, and this is what opened the case up, the uh, medical examiner uh, detected the distinct odor of cyanide. This is kind of a burnt almond or bitter almond smell. Uh, what's interesting about this is that some corpses that have cyanide uh, will emit this odor and others less so. So it's individual there. But more importantly, the ability to detect that or odor by humans is genetic, genetically determined. And it's about 50-50. 50% of people can detect and recognize that order that odor and 50% can't well it turns out that that Janet Miller the uh, medical examiner could and so she suspected cyanide tested for it and lo and behold found it so now she went and tested the bottles of Excedrin three of the pills remaining in the bottle that that Susan Snow and her husband had showed cyanide and the rest of them were clear and so basically what happened is Susan took some contaminated ones and Webb King her husband took the good ones it was just luck of the draw it could have easily gone the other way all right so this opened a lot of very scary scenarios was something going on at at, at Bristol Myers was there a 
a defect in the manufacturing. Well, if so, how would cyanide get in there? Then it came to product tampering. Was someone in the company tampering with certain lots of the of the drug? Maybe they had a uh, a, a beef with the, with the company. Maybe you know they weren't getting what they thought they deserved, et cetera, et cetera. This happens all the time. You know, people try to get back at companies, and so product tampering is one of the ways that some people figure out how to do that. Uh, but then as they started looking at it. They found that 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 both the bottles and now it, it, they 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 reexamined Bruce Nichols and they found cyanide in him also so now you got two victims you've got two bottles and these bottles came from different lots so it meant that if it was central like back at the company someone would have to tamper uh, two or three times in order to get it in different lots because they're made and you know, manufactured in huge numbers and each lot has a number and each lot is, is separate from the next one. That moves on down the line and the next one is made. So this started making, this started raising questions as to whether uh, this was product tampering and an accidental death. Was, was, was this something more directed? Uh, the Stella Nickel, when she came forward again after the Susan Snow death, she realized that the, a big lawsuit was going to come, and she wanted the money. And so if Bruce's death was natural, she couldn't be part of that lawsuit, which may have been her plan all along, and she couldn't have extracted money from Bristol Myers or whoever uh, for the wrongful death suit that was coming. Uh, so she notified authorities and said, you know, I think my, my husband took some, da, 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 and maybe it wasn't a heart attack. Maybe it wasn't a natural death. And sure enough, that's when they reexamined him and found cyanide. So now she could be part of this lawsuit. Well, the FBI crime lab was brought in, and they're pretty thorough. And they not only found cyanide, they found some odd green flakes, little flecks of material in the capsules that were tampered with. They found some of them were and some of them weren't in each of the bottles they tested. Now, remember, they had taken uh, extra strength, et cetera, and off the market. They had removed it from all the stores, and they were going through massive testing of every bottle, basically, every lot, every sample. They, could, they were looking for everything they could to try to trace out how widespread is this problem. Well, it turns out when they tested these little green flecks, they turned out to be a... Um, an algicide, which kills algae in home aquariums, and it's called algae destroyer. Well, guess what? Stella Nickel had aquariums, and they remembered that, and she used algae destroyer. So then they found out that she had visited the local library several times, and this became controversial about the FBI digging into her library, but her library use, but anyway, they did, and they found out she had checked out books regarding poisons, and guess what? Her fingerprints were found all over the pages on algicide and cyanide and all of that stuff. Well, needless to say, um, you have two different lots bought at two different stores, and what it means is she went and, and purchased bottles. She tampered with a few of the pills in each bottle, and then she returned them to the shelves at different stores. 
So this would look like it was a company problem and not an individual. She was trying to deflect blame from her since her husband was going to be dead. And, oh, by the way, if she killed one or two or three or four other people, that would only strengthen her suit against the manufacturer. Well, in 1988, she was convicted. Um, and it turns out that what she had done she, when she took the cap. The capsules apart she put them in a little bowl and mixed them all together and added the cyanide and then put some of them back in there and all of that and it turns out the little bowl was the same one she used to mix the algaecide and she didn't realize some of it was left behind ah best laid plans they always fall apart don't they the last one is 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 a toxicological mystery that still goes on today and it's the it's the death of kurt cobain um, the, the lead singer for Nirvana and really one of the progenitors of the uh, grunge movement out of the Seattle area. Um, and he was he was married to Courtney Love, and everybody knows that story. Kurt died at the age of 27, which put him into the famous 27 Club, which includes people like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. You know, a lot of the rock stars died at age 27 and uh, back in the day. And... Uh, so they formed this little club. Now, Kurt obviously had a long history of drug abuse. Heroin was seemed to be his drug of choice. He also was depressed. Uh, he was all over the map. You know, he had a lot of emotional and social problems. Uh, you know, he was a great songwriter, singer, and band leader and all that stuff. But, you know, he had his personal issues. So uh, they were putting a new, I think, lighting, security lighting system on their house, and there's a garage behind it with an upstairs room, uh, like a little apartment above it, and an electrician uh, whose name was Gary Smith came by to do some work, and uh, he just happened to be up there because they were going to put the lights on this garage roof thing, and he looked in and saw Kurt laying on the floor. Uh, okay. So the police were called, and they came, and what they found is that he was laying on his back, had a shotgun laying on his chest with a, with a muzzle under his chin, and had fired it and killed himself by a gunshot wound uh, beneath his jaw. Okay. Obviously, at autopsy, they found a lot of heroin in his system, a lot of heroin in his system, but that wasn't unusual. One of the odd things about the... Um, crime scene, the, people said, well, you know, the shotgun was upside down so that the, the trigger guard and the trigger were, were toward the ceiling and the barrel was laying on his chest. And they said, well, that's odd. Well, no, it's not. I mean, that's actually how you would do it. If you turn the gun over the other way, then the, 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 the trigger and the trigger guard is against your body and it's kind of hard to get in there. If it's upside down, you know, and the bullet and the, sh the shot when it comes out doesn't care which direction it is, then you can put your thumb in there and pull the trigger. I think you can see that. So that's normal. But the ejection port on a shotgun, this was an automatic. Automatic shotguns eject the shell and seat the next one like automatic guns do. Some shotguns, you, you know, you have to pump them or you have to, you know, d if it's a double barrel, you got to break them down, take out the thing, put in new ones. If it's a single shot, same thing. But an automatic will eject a shell and then reseat the next one ready to fire. And it ejects to the right. So if he's laying on his back with a shotgun upside down and pulls the trigger, the mechanism will happen. It'll eject the shell to his right. But the shell was found to his left.
and there's not really any physical way that could have happened. And so that created the scenario that was someone else involved. But from a toxicological point of view, what the argument that began almost immediately and has really continued until today was there is one group that of toxicologies, toxicologists that think he could not have operated the shotgun, that the levels of the apomorphine that they use to test for heroin, heroin doesn't last but seconds in the body, it's broken down to a morphine derivative, uh, it's a morphine-like drug anyway, uh, and comes from that. So uh, they tested for it and found very high levels of heroin, if you will, and said this is enough that he would basically have been unconscious and could not have operated the gun himself. The other side, toxicologists say, oh, not so fast. This guy used this stuff like candy. He used it all the time. His tolerance for it was much higher than yours and mine. A small amount of heroin in someone who's not used to it is much more dangerous than a larger amount of heroin in someone who is a chronic user. This has to do with how the body handles it, how it reacts to it, how it destroys it, how the enzymes that are involved in this are revved up more in chronic use. Uh, and the person who's never used it, they have lower levels of those destructive enzymes and, and cascade systems. So bottom line is this argument has raised and continues to rage. Did Kurt Cobain shoot up heroin, say, oh, woe is me, goodbye cruel world, and shoot himself? Or was he overdosed on heroin by someone who just gave him too much, and then they staged the scene and shot him? So the toxicological argument, both sides have valid points. To me, it's the shotgun shell, uh, shotgun shell casing that's, uh, that's the real hooker in all of this. So was he murdered? Was it a suicide? We don't know. The official report is that it was a suicide, and it may very well have been, but there are questions, and it's, a, it's an interesting uh intellectual exercise in toxicology how much is too much to operate a gun in someone who is a chronic user so you can see that there's uh you know writers love poisons anyway and you can see that there's a lot of ways and a lot of different types of poisons and a lot of approaches to to a, a criminal activity by someone who is using toxicological um, products so uh, I hope this helps some. I hope it gives you some story ideas. I, I hope you found it interesting, if nothing else. And as I said, there is there will be links on my website and blog and everywhere so that you can go there and read more about it, these fascinating cases. And they are each in their own way very fascinating. So as always, uh, this has been uh, Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction here on um Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and it is copyrighted by them. And until next time, this is D.P. Lyle, and I hope to hear you and see you, and I hope you're listening the next show. Until then. <laughs>